From the earliest days of the New Covenant, the Christian church has been known for its care for the sick, the widow, and the orphan. Think simply of the institution of the hospital. In Sandy and I growing up in Oklahoma City and living there a portion of our life, we had several dealings with hospitals. Uh, Our son John was born at Presbyterian. Our daughter Elizabeth Ann was born at Mercy, a Roman Catholic hospital. Both of our parents were treated at Baptist Hospital, and there was a Methodist hospital across town. Because for centuries, medical care joined with pastoral care was the purview of the Christian church. The very first hospital ever constructed was built in Caesarea in Cappadocia, it's modern-day central Turkey today, built by Basil, the bishop of the region in the year 369. That's an important date for you to remember, that the first hospital ever constructed was built by Christians in Turkey in the 4th century. This started a massive wave of hospital construction by Christians all through the 4th and 5th centuries. Now, up until that point, the predominant world superpowers hadn't done anything to care for the sick and the dying, the Greeks nor the Romans, who actually had no concept of charity or good works. When someone became ill in their homes, their families would take them out to the road and leave them there, even worse, to the city dump. The same Bishop Basil also ordered the construction of orphanages. By the 1800s, orphanages existed in every large city of the United States and Great Britain, all operated by Christians, all having no government funding. My favorite evangelist, George Whitfield, is largely known for his role in the Great Awakening of the 1700s, seeing thousands of conversions under his preaching. What is less known is Whitfield established and funded the Bethesda Orphanage in Savannah, Georgia, and raised all the funds for decades to feed and clothe and educate orphans. The British pastor Charles Haddon Spurgeon did the exact same thing with his Stockwell Orphanage. Spurgeon's contemporary George Mueller did the same, but on a much larger scale. What made these men so passionate for the care of the sick, the widow, and the orphan. It is this parable. Look carefully at your text. Pastor King just read a moment ago in Luke chapter 10. This parable is why Christians led the way with the development of hospitals and rescue missions and orphanages and adoption agencies and crisis pregnancy centers and so much more. As we come to the parables of Jesus, we are now looking at the best-known and well-beloved text in all of the Bible, and let me hasten to add, for good reason. This text speaks to one of the timeless issues of Christian ethics. This is a parable, and we know this because Jesus only uses this formula. Look carefully at verse 30 of our text, and he introduces it by saying, "...a certain man." Jesus uses this when he introduces a parable. He'll do it again in Luke 14 and Luke 15. But we need the Holy Spirit's help to understand this aright because so many have made colossal missteps in interpreting this very familiar parable. And so let's ask the Lord to send the Holy Spirit in power and fullness now. Let's pray. Our Father, how we need your help this morning. Our natural inclination will be to dismiss those things we don't want to hear. 
And we confess that we've erected amazingly complex defense mechanisms against the word. But, oh, Lord, break through our barriers, knock down our barricades, grab hold of our hearts. Lord, we recognize as well that we can be easily distracted. And so, Lord, we pray that you would sweep away all distractions to the hearing of the word. We know the evil one will seek to draw our attention elsewhere. But we ask that you, by this word, would transform us. Transform not just our feelings or our thoughts, but our very practice. Even give us that gift of Holy Spirit-sent repentance. Work mightily in our midst by the ministry of the word, we pray. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Look carefully with me at the dialogue that comes before the the parable. Look at Luke 10, verse 25 and following. And it begins with a lawyer. This is a student of the law, the Old Testament law, testing the Lord Jesus. Look at verse 25. We should commend the lawyer because he's not asking about trivia like where did Cain get his wife or how long was Adam in the garden before he fell or other such speculative nonsense. He's asking about the most important issues of life. Look what he asks. What shall I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus answers the lawyer's question in verse 26. He immediately turns the matter back on the, on the man to see his hermeneutics, his interpretive model, his view of the authority of Scripture. And Jesus holds up his written word as the authority. He doesn't allow for any other authority to speak on the matter. Look what Jesus' answer is in verse 26. What is written? Period. He's going to, he's sending the signal there is your standard of authority the Bible because mine certainly is. If you're looking for low views of the Old Testament, you can't claim Jesus as your ally. And now by answering a question with a question, we're seeing a, a standard teaching methodology of the Lord Jesus. Jesus frequently did this. In his discussions with Nicodemus in John 3 and the Samaritan woman in John 4 are classic examples of cutting through agendas and getting to the heart of the matter. And so he asked the man this question, verse 26. How do you read the Bible? And by doing so, the man's motives and issues and agendas and doctrines will be exposed. And when Jesus asked the man that, the man answers, well, look what he does in verse 27. He states the two great commandments. And Jesus addresses this elsewhere in his teachings But when we talk about the two great commandments, I'll have to define those in just a moment. The two great commandments in verse 27. First of all, the the lawyer quotes Deuteronomy 6, the first and greatest commandment. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind. This is to be expected from this lawyer because he recites the law and this text twice daily. Now, then he answers the second greatest commandment is, he's quoting Leviticus 19.18, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Now, what he's doing is, he's using familiar shorthand by Old Testament Jews. He's dividing the two testaments, or the two commandments, into two tables. The first four commandments of the Ten Commandments show us how to love God. No idols, no false worship. No taking of the name of God in vain, no breaking of the Sabbath. And so all of that is grouped under, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. How do you do that? By having no idols, by not worshiping him falsely, by not taking his name in vain, by keeping his day holy. 
And then he states the, the second greatest commandment. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. How do you love your neighbor as yourself? You do that by honoring the authorities that God has placed over you, not killing them, not committing adultery, not stealing, not lying, not coveting. And Jesus approves. Look at verse 28 carefully. I'm going to keep us tied to the text. Jesus said to him, you have answered rightly. And he did something amazing. After congratulating the lawyer for his knowledge of scripture, Jesus said, do this. Do this and you will live. In other words, okay, practice what you preach. Where do you take a legalist? You take him to the law. You take him to the law to show him his lawlessness, that he, that he falls short. And so the lawyer presses for clarification. Look at verse 29. He's, this, this lawyer is trying desperately for any loophole. He wants some wiggle room. So in verse 29, he's, we're told what his motives are. He wants to justify himself. And so he says to Jesus, who is my neighbor? He's seeking assurance of his justification by works. He's asking, who is it that I am really obligated to love? He wants to be able to say that he actually loves his neighbor and therefore is not spiritually bankrupt. His goal is clear. What he really wants to do is justify himself here by some sort of works righteousness. And let me do a sidebar and explain the three uses of the law, of the moral law. This man has misunderstood the first use of the law. Listen to what the Apostle Paul teaches in Romans 3. By the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. Paul says again in Galatians chapter 3, the law is our tutor to bring us to Christ that we might be justified by faith. The moral law, and this is still true today, the moral law, the Ten Commandments, has three uses in your life and in the culture's life. The first use is to show anyone and everyone their need for a Savior. Because as you study the Ten Commandments, you think, broken, broken, fall short, broken. In fact, James says if you have violated in one point, you've broken them all. And so this is what Paul's premise is in Romans and Galatians to say the first use of the moral law is to show you that you desperately need a Savior who must save you by grace because you cannot be saved by your obedience to the law. The second use of the law is to serve as a guide for civil magistrates to teach what makes for a, a healthy culture. And the third use is what concerns most of us, to show believers what is pleasing to God as a, as a guide for our sanctification. So at this moment after the setup, the lawgiver, this Jesus, who is in the dialogue right now with the lawyer, remember, he's the one who spoke atop Mount Sinai. He's the one who gave the moral law. He certainly knows what its use is. And he tells a parable. It's a simple parable. Look at verses 30 through 35. <coughs> the elements are easily noted. First of all, he tells a story, one that's very simple, can be understood even by smallest children. A man went down on a journey from Jerusalem to Jericho. This is, by the way, a 17-mile journey. It takes you through barren and hilly terrain with lots of hiding places for bandits. The traveler is, according to verse 30, robbed, stripped, beaten, and left by robbers. He's described as half dead. 
meaning he's near death and in desperate need of assistance. Oh, good. Here comes help. Look at verse 31. A priest comes along, sees this man, and at this point will the hearers will say, Yay, help is on the way. The priest moves over to the other side of the road, cruises on by. A Levite comes along in verse 32. The hearers again raise their hopes only to have them dashed. As, as Jesus says, the Levite does the exact same thing as the priest. Now, no doubt, the great concern on the part of the priest and the Levite was this. Ceremonial defilement from coming in contact with a corpse. As they look at this, this heap of person lying over here next to the road, the first thing that comes to their mind is, is he dead? He's not moving. He seems dead. And so I need to make sure that I don't get ceremonially defiled. Look at Numbers 19 and let me tell you what would have driven this ignoring of the, the beaten man. This is what would have been much higher in their echelon of ethics. Look at Numbers 19, verses 11 and following. And the priest and the Levite, they would have known this. This informed their daily life. They were always watching out for dead bodies. Because if they ever came in contact with a corpse, they were ceremonially unclean. They couldn't worship at the temple. And they couldn't do many other things. And so look at Numbers 19, verse 11 and following, where you have the, the law. He who touches the dead body of anyone shall be unclean for seven days. He shall purify himself with the water on the third day and on the seventh day. Then he'll be clean. But if he doesn't purify himself on the third day and on the seventh day, he will not be clean. Whoever touches the body of anyone who has died and doesn't purify himself defiles the tabernacle of the Lord. That person shall be excommunicated. He shall be cut off from Israel. He shall be unclean because the water of purification was not sprinkled on him. His uncleanness is still on him. And so the priest and the Levite think... I don't want to be excommunicated. That man over there could be dead. He seems like he's mostly dead. I might walk over to help him and all of a sudden he breathes his last. And so, not touching him. I better steer very clear of him. By this time, the lawyer is thinking to himself. Jesus is now third going to tell about some ordinary Jew, a layman who came to the rescue. Now notice carefully in verse 31 and 32. The, the motives and the feelings of the priest and the Levite are not brought into this parable. Look at, look at those texts, verse 31 and 32, and you will look in vain for their motives and feelings. What you see is one thing, their actions. Now comes the hero of the story. It's shocking who the hero of the story is. Look at verse 33. A Samaritan comes along. Now stop for a moment and do some clarification in verse 33. Because Jesus, in his telling of the story, has introduced an 800-pound gorilla into the narrative. You see, Samaritans were half-breeds. They were Assyrians who had intermarried with Jews several hundred years earlier. Samaritans only accepted the first five books of the Old Testament and argued that the true temple was on Mount Gerizim. The Jews hated the Samaritans. Oh, that's not strong enough a word. They despised them. They loathed them. Samaritans had historically, 20 years before this conversation, had desecrated the temple in Jerusalem 
by scattering bones in it one night, dead bones, during Passover. Samaritans weren't even allowed to testify in Jewish courts. All Samaritans were viewed equally as ceremonially unclean. Eating with a Samaritan was equated to eating pork. Jews could legally withhold wages from Samaritans and weren't liable for the death penalty if they killed a Samaritan. Knowing all that, resume the saga with me. We could contextualize the saga. If you're thinking, Carl, draw an analogy. Scroll the clock forward 2,000 years. What would this look like if it were drawn into the 21st century? Let's tell the story this way. A PCA member went up to Detroit, was carjacked and beaten, and a deacon passed him by. And then an elder passed him by. But a Mormon lady came and helped. We're told of the Samaritan's feeling. Look at verse 33. Unlike the priest and the Levite, we're told he had compassion. The suffering of another had moved him to pity. Compassion means that he suffered with him. We would say, I feel your pain. He, he doesn't ask the man laying in the road, are you a Samaritan? I need to know before I can help you. And so the Samaritan goes to him, and I want you to see the crux of it. Look carefully at verse 34 and 35. The Samaritan goes to this man who's mostly dead, and he acts. And so look what he does. He stops the bleeding by bandaging his wounds. He pours on soothing oil for pain relief and wine as an antiseptic. He puts the stranger on his animal, which means now he, the Samaritan, must walk. He takes him to an inn. He takes care of him. He makes long-term provision for this stranger, and he takes on future liability. He makes payment for a several-week stay. He even involves others in caring. Look at what he says to the innkeeper. He says to the innkeeper, I've got to move on, but you take care of him, and then I'm going to come back and repay you for any expenses you incur. We would be poor interpreters if in this moment we didn't see the gospel shining through in the parable. The man who shows mercy, the Samaritan, is one who should view this beaten Israelite as an enemy. But by showing active kindness to his enemy, do you hear that? By showing active kindness to his enemy, he perfectly pictures this element of the gospel. When we were still without strength, in due time, Christ died for the ungodly. God demonstrates his own love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. This parable also shows us the despised one who comes to the needy and helpless and meets their need. Well, the dialogue resumes after Jesus tells the parable. Look at verse 36 and 37. Jesus asks a clarifying question. He presses this Jewish lawyer. He asks him, so which of these three do you think was a neighbor to him who fell among the thieves? The lawyer simply wanted to have a philosophical discussion. He asked in verse 29, who's my neighbor? Jesus won't let him get away with it. The lawyer wanted to discuss neighbor in a general way. Jesus forces him to consider a specific man in need. Jesus doesn't talk about societal poverty or creating jobs as abstractions. No, he wants to 
press the lawyer on a real individual need. Jesus moves, look carefully at the text in verse 36 and 37. He moves from discussing a philosophical point to doing. I, I cannot tell you on ethical issues how many conversations I tried to think of. It's well over hundreds. It's thousands. Ethical issues I've had from armchair theologians who want to discuss theory and policy but not action. Look at verse 36 and 37. I might be talking to you where your issues on on ethics never gets beyond theory. It never gets to action. And so what Jesus does in verse 36 and 37, he gets to action. And so Jesus asked him the question, which of these three do you think was neighbor to him who fell among the thieves? And the lawyer, look at verse 37, he correctly responds. Being an expert in the law, the questioner certainly knew that God required his people to show mercy even to strangers and enemies. Look carefully. You're going to need to use your Bible because I want you to see what every faithful Israelite knew. It's not like the New Testament introduced mercy. The Old Testament is full of it. Look at Leviticus 19. In Leviticus 19, verse 33 and 34, the law teaches Israelites, Leviticus 19:33, and if a stranger dwells with you in your land, you shall not mistreat him. The stranger who dwells among you shall be to you as one born among you, and you shall love him as yourself. For you were strangers in the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. The law clarifies. Look at Exodus 23. Exodus 23, and the Lord commands not only mercy to people, but even to animals, even the animals of enemies. Look at Exodus 23, where the Lord commands in verse 4 and 5, if you meet your enemy's ox or his donkey, Going astray, you shall surely bring it back to him again. If you see the donkey of one who hates you lying under its burden, and you would refrain from helping it, here's the exact situation. If you'd refrain from helping it, you shall surely help him with it. And so these, the priest and the, the Levite, they know this. They know Micah 6 8. He has shown you, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you, but to do, to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. But notice the answer to Jesus' question. Look at verse 36 in our Lord's question. Which of these three do you think was neighbor to him who fell among the thieves? The question is inescapable. The Jewish lawyer, look at his answer in verse 37. He couldn't bring himself to say these words. It's stuck in his crawl. The, the Samaritan. All he could say, look at verse 37, was this. He. It had to be dragged out of him. Do you hear how radical Jesus is? He is telling, get this clearly fixed in your mind. He's telling a Jewish lawyer to imitate a Samaritan. 
Oh, how this stuck in his crawl when he heard Jesus say this. Now, I want to spend quite a bit of time on the application because look at verse 37. The application is the second half of verse 37. It's the simplest of all applications. Then Jesus said to him, Go and do likewise. There is no guesswork required on discerning how to apply this parable. Jesus himself states it with uncharacteristic directness and bluntness. Go do likewise. And so let me make that even clearer to you in terms of the application of this word. First application. The true believer is always shown by his deeds of mercy. Good works are the proof of saving faith. Look at the emphasis on action in verse 37. Jesus says, go and do. Now what I want you to see with me is this is not unusual for our Lord. He teaches on this and he says, the evidence over and over again, our Lord and then our Lord's brother James says the same. The evidence that a man is regenerate, truly a partaker of the covenant of grace, is always this. His deeds, his good works. Look at Matthew 25, and I want us to see this very clearly. In Matthew chapter 25, Jesus is teaching about the last judgment. And it's astounding, it's jaw-dropping actually. When Jesus is, is talking about the last judgment. And we are thinking, of course, aren't we, that Jesus is going to say, say, over here on my right hand are the sheep, and these are all the people who walked an aisle, signed a card, and were members of Woodruff Presbyterian Church. They'd made a profession. Their, their structure of propositional belief was right. That's not at all what he says. Look at what Jesus says. In Matthew 25, verse 31, when the Son of Man comes in His glory and all the holy angels with Him, then He'll sit on His throne of glory. All the nations will be gathered before Him and He'll separate them one from another as a shepherd divides his sheep from the goats. And He'll set the sheep on His right hand, the goats on the left. The King will say to those on His right hand, Come, you blessed of my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me food. Your deeds were the evidence of your conversion. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you took me in. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Do you notice what Jesus states as the evidence in every case for all the billions of the elect on his right? Their actions. Not their words. Their actions, that's the incontrovertible evidence. And then, what is the evidence that a man is unregenerate? Look at Matthew 25, verse 41. Depart from me, you cursed, into the everlasting fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me no food. I was thirsty, and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, and you did not take me in. I was naked, and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison, and you did not visit me. And the incontrovertible evidence over here of the unregenerate, it shows up in their complete and utter lack 
of mercy and good works. Hasn't the sovereign Lord, we are told in Ephesians 10, ordained from eternity past good works for his elect to walk in? We're told by Jesus in Matthew chapter 5, such good works are light that shines before men so they may see them and glorify our Father in heaven. This parable, in case you haven't got it, there's some, I'm usually that guy in the room, there's some of you who are the, one of the last people to get it. Let me help you get it. This parable is speaking to helping those who are helpless. Today the Lord is calling some of you to be a Samaritan, to help a helpless child who's been orphaned by war or AIDS in Africa. The Lord is saying to some of you that your neighbor is a poor Haitian family in Haiti where we support the ministries of Octavius Delfields. 80% of the population lives on $2 a day. Most Haitians spend three quarters of their income every day on food and they're still malnourished. Octavius told me because of chronic malnutrition where he is in Port-au-Prince, Haiti, 14-year-old boys have the height and weight of American 7-year-old boys. The Lord is saying to others of you, be a Samaritan in this community, things like Meals on Wheels. Still others have a, a calling to act, to care for the weakest neighbors in Greenville, defenseless children in the womb, of whom one million were slaughtered in the United States in 2021. Or others of you will want to volunteer or give to Piedmont Women's Center or Calvary Home for Children. But what you can't be, what you cannot be, and still call yourself with a straight face, a disciple of Jesus, is inactive in showing mercy. The believer, the regenerate man, will always show it in every case. He'll show it by God love and neighbor love. Your deeds will show your creeds. A second application that we must take away from this text. This text shows us that we should never be surprised at the lack of care and kindness and compassion on the part of lost men. Never be surprised at the utter stoniness of heart of lost men. Paul describes the typical lost man in Titus 3 verse 3 as hateful and hating one another. So never be surprised when lost men act like lost men and have no compassion for the hurting, the needy when they can walk by on the other side of the road very easily. Another application. Because some of you right now are doing calculus. You're thinking about your checkbook. You're thinking about your time. And so let me go ahead and just speak to that. Compassion will involve your time, your money, and your effort in every case. Love expends resources in the interest of others. Look at all the steps the Samaritan took. Let's document his, his sacrificial love. Look at verse 34. He acted with initiative. He went to him. He acted with thoroughness in verse 35. He took care of him. This involved nursing and food and lodging. And he came back. Look at verse 35. When I come again, he follows up. He acted with self-denial. It cost him his time and his money. I'm convinced that we as Americans in the 21st century, we are easily the most selfish generation in history. 
we have more and we give less than any previous generation of Christians. Whether we're speaking of time or money or other resources, we are the most selfish. Many evangelical Christians, or at least confessing Christians, will say, Well, Carl, I I have deep feelings of compassion and mercy for the hurting. Carl, I cry at movies. I cry every time Oprah is on television. I cry whenever I hear a Barry Manilow song. I love deeply. And the proof is I'm a very feeling person. My friends, feelings are not love. Love is an action. Look at verse 37. Jesus doesn't say to the lawyer... Go and feel. He tells him, go and do. How do we know God loves us? Is it because he blows kisses from heaven and says, I love you? No. A thousand times no. We know he loves us in this way. God so loves the world that he expended his most precious and rare resource, his only son. He acts. He gives. Another application this text should teach us. This text hits on one of our Lord's favorite themes, the great reversal. Those who are fulfilling biblical injunctions and entering the kingdom are not the expected ones. Repeatedly, and oh, this is what chapped so much the Sadducees and the Pharisees and the priests and the Levites because the hero of all of Jesus' story was never them They wanted to be admired. They wanted to be exalted. And he does it again here. Who's the hero of his story? It's not the priest and the Levite, for they demonstrated that they neither loved God nor their neighbor. Strangely enough, who's the hero of his story? The Samaritan. The outcast is known for his love. And once again, in the story of Jesus, the last have become first, And the first have become last. A final application. It is very possible to be actively involved in acts of religious duty and have no mercy or compassion. Isn't that the lesson that Jesus is teaching by using two professional religionists? Here are two men that have great theology and they have no mercy, no kindness, No love, and they're lost as a ball in high grass. This parable is aimed at religious people. And it's shouting that religion without deeds, religion without love, religion without compassion is absolutely worthless. There are people, the priest and the Levite in this saga, who know all about the sacrificial system. They know the feast days and the fast days. They know about circumcision. They know about what you can do and cannot do in the Sabbath. And they have absolutely no love for the neediest of people. My friend, today, you may have had a great crisis experience. You may have walked an aisle, signed a card, joined a church, prayed a prayer. But if you don't have love, which is an action, the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13, You have nothing. Our Lord's brother in James 2 says, If you have no accompanying deeds of mercy, your faith is a dead faith. It's a demonic faith. Love. 
which is what we see the Samaritan engaged here. Love, which is an action, is the principal proof, the first of the fruit of the Spirit, the first proof that the Holy Spirit has come to dwell in you as a believer. Go and do likewise. Let's pray. O Sovereign Lord, deliver us from a dead and inactive faith that loves to debate and discuss, but has no action, no deeds of mercy, no love for our neighbor. O Christ, we hear you speaking clearly when you say, go and do likewise. And so use us in our neighborhoods, in our families, in our workplaces as agents of compassion. You have told us in your word that this is good, to love mercy. Send us forth to be conduits of acts of mercy. We pray in the name of our Lord Jesus. Amen.